0: Please pray with me. Lord, I pray we would hear your word this morning and by your word conform us to the image of your son. In his name we pray. Please be seated. Our theme this morning is forgiveness. A huge topic involving a wide diversity of issues, but I will focus my comments to our particular lectionary readings. This is also a vitally important topic that we need to continue to think about deeply for ourselves, for our church, our society. As we look over our lectionary readings, we read in our psalm, The Lord forgives all your sins and heals all your infirmities that because he is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and great in kindness, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. In the wonderful passage from the end of Genesis, we read the account of Joseph forgiving his brothers for the crime they committed against him, not only forgiving them, but also restoring their relationship. In our gospel reading, we have the famous conversation between Peter and Jesus about forgiveness and the parable of the unrighteous or unmerciful slave who refused to forgive another for a debt far smaller than the one for which the king had forgiven him. Forgiveness is, of course, a keynote of our services every Sunday morning. In our creed, we confirm that the crucifixion of Jesus And our baptism into Him guarantees the forgiveness of our sins. In our prayers, we admit that we have sinned against God and appeal to Him to have mercy on us and forgive us. And in so doing, the celebrant pronounces us forgiven for our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the great thanksgiving, forgiveness is one central affirmation as we rehearse and remember the deliverance from sin accomplished for us by Jesus Christ and the reconciliation with God that his sacrifice alone has achieved. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, again, we ask God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I wonder sometimes if I'm the one who comes to mind when someone prays this. As we have just sung, forgive us our sins as we forgive you taught us, Lord, to pray, but you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. Forgiveness. It is also a major theme of our lives. The occasions that call for forgiveness, the need to extend and receive forgiveness is our daily experience and follows us over the course of our lives. When I was 11 years old, I was in the Yankee department store in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, with my mom and my younger brother, Chris. I wanted to replace a missing piece from a toy car, but I didn't want to pay for a new one just to get that one part. So when I found the model I wanted, I shoved it down my pants and made my way to the exit. And just as I was about to leave the store, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned and found myself face to face with a security guard who simply said, hand it over. It was terrifying. It got worse. I was ushered to a place at the back of the store while another guard took my brother to look for my mom. They sat me down at a table in a dingy dingy room above which I kid you not, there was one naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Before long, I heard footsteps coming up the stairs to the room. And when my mother entered, she looked at me and uttered those familiar devastating words. I am so disappointed in them. Now, by age 11, I had already done plenty of evil things. I don't exaggerate. And actions for which my parents needed to discipline me. But that was the first time I had been confronted so keenly with the consequence of really breaking my parents' trust. What followed were days and weeks of guilt and shame as the fallout from my actions solidified my role as the dark sheep of the family. Unfortunately for me, though sort of in a perverse way, my other four brothers would do plenty to overcome that deficit, and eventually we would all be on equal footing. But those words, I am so disappointed in you, would never stop haunting me. Forgiveness pervades our lives as much as it does our liturgy. There is no greater theme in our faith because there is no greater need we feel in light of our careers with sin. This morning, I wanna take up that theme and talk about some of our difficulties with forgiveness, some differences between divine and human forgiveness, and then some final reflections on the beauty of forgiveness. It's hard to forgive. It's painful because it comes from pain. You hurt me and I'm understandably angry with you. I also find it difficult to forgive and especially to ask for forgiveness because I'm prideful. And I just need to admit that. I hurt you. And I fear or resent the loss to my self-esteem if I tell you I'm sorry. Especially if I think you're equally guilty of being in the wrong. Welcome to marriage. Forgiveness is difficult because of this mixture of pain and pride. And I find it difficult to receive forgiveness in some ways for the same reason, my pride. So, mostly because I'm convinced that I don't deserve it. All of this sound familiar. We talk about imposter syndrome at Yale, believing that we aren't really qualified to be here. and one day we will be found out. There's a similar kind of spiritual imposter syndrome because we're hypocrites, and we know it. And we believe that if people knew what we were, what we're really like—the things we do and think and feel—would so repulse them that they would want nothing to do with us. And maybe they wouldn't. Which is why it's not entirely unreasonable for us to want to hide these things, including from the people who are closest to us. We do enough overtly for which others need to forgive us. Why add to the pile and provoke an even harsher judgment? We of course tend to underestimate the willingness or capacity of others, including God, to forgive us and to love us in spite of our failings. More on that presently. In addition to the very personal reasons that make giving and receiving forgiveness difficult, we may also misunderstand what what forgiveness is as well as what it does and does not achieve. In his recent book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, Harvard scholar Matthew Potts affirms the vital importance of what he calls real forgiveness, particularly between human beings, while challenging certain common notions of it. One such misunderstanding is that forgiveness brings reconciliation and restoration. It may lead to this, to putting things right, Potts argues, but it neither guarantees. Or achieves it. Yes, we need to forgive and be forgiven for harm's done, but it does not, he insists, undo, restore, or erase the past. And when we think about it, this strikes true. I may, and as a Christian, need to forgive you for harming me. But that doesn't mean that what you did didn't bring real harm, or that our relationship is healed or ever will be in this life, or even that I should continue in any kind of relationship with you at all. The examples of abuse and addiction come to mind here. Potson adds that forgiveness also cannot compensate for the hurt, injustice, destruction committed, and yet neither can retaliation in whatever form. What in Pott's account accompanies real forgiveness in light of the pain and anger we both cause or feel is grief. Grief rather than retaliation should be the outcome or partner of our anger, he writes. And so he concludes forgiveness is a form of admitting and mourning both what we cannot do and what we cannot undo, and then doing what we can in deep grief and penitence for what we have done. There's always loss where forgiveness is concerned. And the sadness we feel for what has been lost or taken or destroyed remains with us. This is also why in many cases, we have to continue to forgive someone, not for sake of the one who hurts us, but at least for the sake of our own spiritual welfare. As Martin Luther King, who knew well the stakes and the burden that forgiveness bears, once said, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. Although it neither guarantees reconciliation or restoration nor achieves compensation for harms done, none of that becomes possible unless and until we forgive. Forgiveness necessarily begins any process of healing. And here, the example of Joseph and his brothers is noteworthy. Joseph may have told his brothers that what they did to him, finding him and letting him be carried off by slave traders, fabricating his death and lying to their father, was just too painful and sent them away. He may also have found out that they told another lie when they said that Jacob had requested Joseph to forgive them for the harm they had done to him. These guys were incorrigible and were only sorry that they were, and were, only sorry that they were in such dire straits and wanted to avoid both the consequences of their crime and their imminent demise because of the famine. Although he messes with them by concocting his own ruse, to terrify them, giving them sort of a taste of their own medicine, Joseph does more than forgive. He restores their relationship and cares for them. What changed for Joseph was his perception. He had no illusions about his brother's character or the severity of what they had done to him, but he saw a bigger picture, saw the providence of God, not only towards himself, but towards God's people and all that he suffered. Ironically, what they did to Joseph is what made it possible for them to be saved from the famine. Such is the mysterious goodness of God. From this episode, we might think of it this way. Restoration, or to use another word, redemption, completes the process that forgiveness necessarily begins. All of this, again, has particular relevance to forgiveness between human beings But what of God's forgiveness for us, of us, for all of its difficulties, in what ways is it the same and in what ways different? I'm not going to explore various theories of the atonement here or the complexities of what exactly was accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, especially from God's perspective. I want to focus mainly on the effects of being forgiven by God through what Jesus alone did for us and its implications for our relationship with God and with others. One obvious difference between our forgiveness of each other and God's forgiveness of us is that we are all on a level playing field. When I forgive another person or they forgive me, it's one sinner forgiving another sinner. And in saying so, I no way want to suggest that the things we do to each other are equal. Committing atrocities against other human beings is hardly the same thing as backing into their car. I only want to recognize that all of us are guilty of evil, whereas God is entirely righteous. God is also the one to whom we are ultimately accountable. And so another striking difference, which Catherine Green McBride reminded me of this week, is that we can forgive people, but only God can forgive sins. I can declare or confirm the forgiveness of sins by God, whether my own or another's, which is what the priest does in our liturgy. But I cannot remove the judgment for your sins. This is why when Jesus declared to the paralytic and to others, your sins are forgiven, many of the bystanders were scandalized and accused him of blasphemy. So when we again read in Psalm 103 that the Lord has removed our sins from us as far as the East is from the West, he exercises his mercy in a way that he alone has the privilege to do. The psalm assures us assures those who rely upon the mercy of God that God will not hold them to account for their sins. To remove them from us is to declare us not guilty. Of course, we may even be ignorant of our sin or fail to appreciate the gravity of it. This is why we take comfort from Jesus' prayer on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But God does not. As David admonishes his son Solomon, the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. So when God separates us from the sin that has separated us from him, obviously this is not because God has forgotten, but because he chooses not to hold our sins against us. So that it is as if they did not exist in the only way that matters, in his eyes. Forgiveness always carries judgment with it and then carries it away. With God's forgiveness, that carrying away is further and more final than any human forgiveness could ever accomplish. As I mentioned before, I find this difficult to accept. I sin, I feel guilty for it. I sin again in the same way. And I find myself at times wallowing in guilt and shame. This is why I find it difficult to pray in our confession of sin. I am truly sorry and humbly repent. Am I truly sorry? And if indeed I indeed humbly repent, that is turn away, why am I confessing the same litany of sins as I did the previous? I find this troubling. I'm not suggesting we change the words of the lectionary, but I struggle with it. But this also points to another remarkable difference between human and divine forgiveness. Now, I may forgive someone without their being truly sorry for what they did, let alone admitting that they were wrong. I forgive them because I have been forgiven everything by God. But the ongoing forgiveness we have in Christ is not measured by how sorry we are. How much regret and repentance we manage to generate. No more more so than any other works can save us. Paul stated this with finality in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is finished. The slate is wiped clean and we stand justified before God. And there is nothing, including how much sorrow or guilt we may try to muster, that will add one ounce, one iota, to the forgiveness that God has freely granted to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Paul calls this a gift, bought and paid for by Jesus. I can receive it, or I can refuse it but I cannot improve it, let alone repay it. Like any gift, it doesn't come with a bill. So when I come forward at communion to receive the elements, it is not as one pleading for forgiveness, but as one who has had forgiveness pledged to him already. I come forward to affirm this and to once more say thank you. But still we struggle with guilt as much as we struggle to forgive. We think God is like us. We think there must be a limit to how much of our sin God is willing to put up with, or how much we can put up with it from each other. And This is one issue that arises in our gospel passage from Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and asks how often he should forgive his brother. This follows on the heels of Jesus' instruction about how to address sin in the church, but before that, significantly, a parable about the sheep that has gone astray, which depicts God the Father's commitment to find and recover the person who has gone astray. Jesus prefaces this parable with a signature statement about his whole mission. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Echoing his declaration to Nicodemus in John 3, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through. Now, having just heard all of this instruction about the Father's love for the lost and how to handle sin in the church, a concern arises for Peter. That's interesting, as well as a bit humorous, that Peter doesn't ask Jesus, how often should my brother forgive me? but how often should I forgive them? And Peter proposes a number. Seven times. I can't help but feel that Peter thought he was being magnanimous. And in a way, he was. If you do the same thing to me over and over again, forgiving you for it seven times seems pretty good. But Jesus won't have it. He explodes Peter's suggestion. 70 times 7 figuratively declaring that forgiveness in the kingdom of God is unconstrained by repetition and limitless in its offering. And to drive home the point, but also to expand it, he tells the story not mainly of the servant, but of the king. What the king does first in forgiving his slave, the massive debt that the man owed him, and then punishing that slave for refusing to do the same with his fellow slave who owed him far less. We tend to read this parable as mainly a warning about not forgiving others, which it is, since we also, like this life, have been forgiven far more in the eyes of God than the wrongs we have suffered from others. But this ignores the larger context of mercy. Jesus is not laying down a requirement for our being forgiven, but expanding our comprehension of what it means. There are two erroneous ways of thinking about forgiveness, especially pertaining to God's forgiveness, that Jesus clears up in this passage. The first is that it is limited rather than limitless. The second error from this parable is that forgiveness is merely transaction rather than transformation. This servant's motive, not unlike the motive of Joseph's brothers, is simply to get off the hook to be relieved of the debt or to escape the consequences for his actions. But that is not what motivates the king. The king's motive, we read, is compassion. Moreover, he doesn't fulfill the servant's request to be patient with him until the debt can be repaid. There's no bargain struck. He forgives the entire debt, which the servant did not ask for. When the servant then refuses to show the same mercy to his fellow slave, mercy itself has been renounced by him. He has repudiated the very premise of the kingdom's view of forgiveness established by the compassionate king, the rule of mercy, not law. To reject that in one's dealings with others is to reject the mercy you have been shown. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart? we just sang. I think this is what Jesus is driving at when he concludes from his parable that my heavenly father will also do the same to you. That is like the king holding you accountable for repaying your entire debt. If each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. A transactional view of this would be that Jesus centers forgiveness in what we deserve what we earn, in a sort of tit-for-tat economy. But that would undermine everything he has stressed about mercy and the infinite scale of God's forgiveness of us. A transformational view recognizes that Jesus' warning here is dire. But rather than centering forgiveness in our conduct, he centers it in our condition. To be someone who is forgiven for more than one particular debt, but for all debts. For every sin I have committed means becoming a forgiver of others. I have not truly understood God's forgiveness at all until this outlook and the actions that follow from it have become a way of life for me. And in that light, I turn lastly to offer some final comments about the beauty of forgiveness. A transformational view of forgiveness calls to mind another encounter that we find in Luke 7 with the prostitute who interrupts Jesus' meal with the Pharisees, Simon. Recall that she falls at Jesus' feet and washes them with her hair as she anoints them with perfume. Simon is, of course, scandalized by this, to which Jesus responds with another parable about debtors and the forgiveness of debt. Having told that story and how the debtor who has been forgiven more, loves more. Jesus then turns to the woman, says of her acts of kindness and affection for him, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. As I said earlier, forgiveness always carries judgment with it, but then carries it away. The fruit of this, as with its motivation, is love. Constrained by wrong, forgiveness burrs the possibility of a love that can put things right. A love that is transformative. With God, that matter is settled for us in Christ. As we will sing during communion, my past embraced, my sins forgiven. I'm blameless in your sight. My history be written. Is there anything for which God has forgiven you? Which is everything? That you find it difficult to forgive yourself? I know how challenging this is. As I've shared. But 70 times 7 applies to us also. As far as the east is from the west. In our relationships with one another, forgiveness becomes integral to our daily existence within the church and within the world. Even though it doesn't of itself promise full restoration between us, when we say to one another, as Dale encouraged us to express in her sermon last week, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. A new world of possibility opens up. Indeed, the very remaking of a world into a place of healing and restoration becomes possible. If restoration follows, it necessarily flows from forgiveness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. As we turn to our prayers, is there anyone you have not forgiven or find it difficult to forgive? or from whom you need forgiveness. To speak of the beauty of forgiveness then recognizes something far more vital, far more powerful than your sentiment. Forgiveness is glorious, all-pervasive, abiding as one great cause and aim in all of our interpersonal relationships, and indeed in the welfare of whole societies and nations. Indeed, as we observed through, throughout scripture and sang last week in our A service, God is forgiveness. Forgiveness is also as intimate in scope as it is magnificent in scale. And here also we see its beauty. Mark Twain once said, forgiveness is the fragrance fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Forgiveness turns what is ugly and hurtful towards something lovely because of its promise of love. There's nothing that touches us more deeply or more daily. To adapt the Apostle John's words, we love because God first loved us, we forgive because God first forgave us. Amen.